The first time the word justice is found in the Bible is when God is discussing with a couple of angels whether or not to reveal to Abraham what he's about to do in Sodom. In Genesis 18:19, God says, For I have chosen him in order that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice in order that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. Apparently, the way the Lord was about to do righteousness and justice included fire and brimstone, but we're not going there this morning. What we do need to note is that God's promises to Abraham were conditioned by his and his children's keeping the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. The next time we find the word justice, it's in the law, warning us not to pervert the justice due to our needy brother in a dispute. In the second giving of the law recorded in Deuteronomy, we are reminded that God does not show partiality and that he executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows love for the alien, and so must we. And in Deuteronomy 16, 18 through 20, he tells the Israelites how to establish a system to help assure that justice is done. He says, you shall appoint for yourself judges and officers in all your towns, which the Lord your God is giving you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not distort justice. You shall not be partial. And you shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall pursue, that you may live and possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. The importance of administering justice on a social level and practicing justice on a personal level is found throughout the Bible. And as we noted last week, the foundation of biblical justice is righteousness, treating each other as God has ordained. We hear a lot today about the need for social justice. And obviously, we won't have a godly society if we don't seek justice for all. And there is obviously a need for righteous judgments to be made on an individual level. All agree that both are needed, but how to achieve it is open for debate, often contentious, debate. Does justice on a social level demand equity, equal outcome, or simply equal opportunity? And who determines what equal opportunity should look like or how it should be achieved by governmental coercion or voluntary action? 
And is it even possible for judgments made in a court of law to always be right and just when everyone involved is sinful by nature? We have not been given answers to all the questions surrounding the administration of justice in a fallen world. And Christians, churches, and ecclesiastical bodies should be very careful about taking sides in the arguments. There is one area of justice, however, where we have been given the final word. And it's the most important aspect of justice that exists. It's how sinful men can be found just, be justified before God. Justice and being justified are obviously related. And the concept of being justified before God was borrowed from the courtroom. When someone's actions are found to be justified in a court of law, he is declared to be innocent of the charges brought against him. It's the opposite of being found guilty. However, we all know someone can actually be guilty even though declared not guilty by the court. So being declared innocent, justified, doesn't necessarily mean someone is innocent. It only means that he is considered to be innocent in the eyes of the court. And that is key to understanding our being justified in the eyes of God because no one is truly innocent before God. For as Paul clearly states in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means that no one can stand before a holy God and be found acceptable on the basis of their own righteousness. For as Isaiah declared long ago, all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. We like to think we can cover our sin with good works, that we can balance the scale of justice by doing more good than bad, but we can't. Any sin at all makes us a sinner, and there is nothing we can do to make sinners acceptable to a holy God. It is therefore impossible for us to save ourselves from being found guilty of sin and thus condemned, cut off eternally from our Creator. That is why we need a Savior, someone who can save us. And the good news is that Jesus came to earth to become our Savior, to make it possible for us to be considered acceptable by God, to be justified In his sight, Jesus came so I can see by God just as if I'd never sinned. And it's Paul who taught us what it means to be justified. Romans contains the most complete teaching on justification, but he first wrote about it in his letter to the Galatians. And he did so 
while reporting about his confrontation with Peter. Last week, we looked at that confrontation. We saw how Paul opposed Peter to his face for cutting off fellowship with Gentile Christians in Antioch when legalistic Jewish Christians came from Jerusalem. And as we drew our study to a close, Paul had just said to Peter, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? That question leads into Paul's first teaching on justification, a teaching that was apparently first given to Peter himself, a teaching that we will briefly examine this morning by looking at three aspects of justification. Justification as it relates to Jews, to other sinners, and to grace itself. We're picking up our study in the second chapter of Galatians, ready for verses 15 and 16. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now, not everyone agrees that Paul is continuing, continuing to relate his words here to Peter. But the translators of both the NASB and the NIV keep everything from the middle of verse 14 through verse 21 in quotes. So we're in good company to assume Paul is here sharing with the Galatians what he told Peter. I do find it amusing to think that Paul had the audacity to lecture Peter on justification. Now, that's not to suggest that what he had to say was directed solely to Peter. The we he begins with surely included Peter, but it also included all Jews who had come to faith in Christ. And he begins by noting that those who were born Jews had a distinct advantage over the Gentiles who had very little, if any, knowledge of God and were therefore simply by default sinners cut off from him. Jews, on the other hand, knew God because he had revealed himself to them. He first did so by revealing himself to selected individuals, but then started working through the nation as a whole. And to the nation he gave ceremonial and moral laws, promising to dwell in their midst and give them access to himself through obedience and the means he provided. 1,500 years of failure to obey the law had demonstrated, however, that no one could make himself acceptable to God through obedience. No one could obey all the laws all the time. And as James noted, to break just one point of the law is to become a lawbreaker. 
and makes one as guilty before God as if he had broken all the laws. As Paul will explain in Romans, the real purpose for the law wasn't to make us good anyway. It was to reveal how sinful we really are and to make us realize our need for grace. Peter and all the Jews who'd become Christians did understand this. That's why they had become Christians, why they had expressed faith in Jesus as their Savior in the first place, faith that he could do for them what the law had been unable to do, that he could justify them before God, that by paying the penalty for their sins on the cross, he could make them acceptable to a holy God. They understood that was why Jesus had come to earth, that he had come to justify sinners before God. What they had apparently forgotten was that he had come to justify Jewish and Gentile sinners alike. Verse 17. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. Now there's a real temptation to lift this verse out of its historical context and to overlook its application to the situation Paul is addressing. And we tend to do so because what he says here almost sounds like something he clearly states in Romans. Paul has just begun teaching on justification. And some are convinced that he is here addressing a misunderstanding that seems to quickly surface whenever someone first hears about grace that he's dealing with the possibility of grace leading to license, that he is answering those who might suggest that by taking away the need to obey the law, people will feel free to sin. And that can be a problem. Knowing that the penalty for sin has already been paid by someone else might lead some to assume that they are then free to sin with no fear of consequences. If that happens... Might not Jesus and his offer of grace be to blame for encouraging people to go ahead and sin? Now, Paul does deal with this possibility in Romans 6. And he answers it definitively by asking a very pointed question, how shall we who are dead to sin still live in it? He goes on to make it clear that when we were baptized into Christ, our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. So it's unthinkable to believe we can now live a life of sin under grace, that we've been given a license to sin. Now again, Paul clearly addresses this matter in Romans. But it's probably not what he's addressing here in Galatians. The issue at hand was Peter withdrawing from fellowship with Gentile Christians. And he did so because he thought his Jewish brethren would think he was defiling himself, making himself into a sinner by eating with Gentiles. Gentiles who had become Christians, but were apparently still viewed as 
unclean before God. If that were the case, then Jesus would be a minister of sin because he had commissioned the apostles to take the gospel to Gentiles. And he had ordained that the church contain both Jews and Gentiles in fellowship around a common table. What the Jewish brethren from Jerusalem, and apparently even Peter, had forgotten was that Jew and Gentile alike were justified in Christ. And no one is considered to be clean in God's eyes. No one who is considered to be clean in God's eyes can be considered unclean or a source of spiritual pollution. Jesus is not a minister of sin, one who leads people into relationships that will defile them. He is the one who justifies sinners, Jews and Gentiles alike. He's the one who can make anyone acceptable in God's eyes, and he is the only one who can do so. For it's only through God's grace that anyone can be justified. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness came through the law, then Christ died needlessly. And whether Paul actually declared to Peter what he interjects in verse 20 or not, we have no way to know. But it's quite possible that this is an emotional outburst that came upon him as he was writing to the Galatians, that as he wrote, I died to the law that I might live to God, the floodgates opened and he found himself exclaiming, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Those are without a doubt the most powerful words in all of Galatians, and we're going to look at them again in depth next week. So let's now simply focus on the thought that surrounds verse 20. Eating with a Gentile brethren won't make a Jewish Christian into a transgressor, but going back to the demands of the law certainly will. Every Jew who became a Christian had died to the law. They had to die to the law before they could live to God. They had to give up trying to find acceptance with God through obedience to the law before they could accept the grace of God made available through his son. To then go back and place themselves under the law's demands in regard to ceremonial uncleanness was to nullify the grace of God. By separating themselves from their Gentile brethren, the Judaizers and Peter 
We're inadvertently suggesting that what Christ did on the cross was not enough. That before Gentiles could really be acceptable to God or to their Jewish brethren, they had to add obedience to the law to what Christ did for them. Obedience to a law that Jews themselves had been unable to obey. But no one is saved through the law and Christ. They're saved by Christ and Christ alone. If the law played any role in our redemption, other than bringing us to an understanding of our need for grace, then Christ died needlessly because the law would then have power to save. The only way the sacrifice of God's Son can be justified is if it is the only way a man can be justified. Because if obedience to the law or works of any kind can make a man right with God, the cost of grace is not justified. It really wouldn't be worth it for God to send his son and to allow him to go through all he went through if there had been another way for men to be justified. But grace is justified because it's the only way. The penalty for sin, death, had to be paid and we could not pay it, any part of it, and live. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He saved us from the just consequences of our sin. He justified us in God's eyes. Now again, as Paul will teach us in Romans, that does not mean we are therefore free to sin, that we've been given a license to sin. In fact, Understanding what Christ did for us actually keeps us from sinning because it motivates us to give up living for ourselves and to start living lives that reflect the righteous nature of our Heavenly Father, doing what He expects and even requires of His children. And what is it that God requires of us? Micah 6, 8 sums it up pretty well. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Now, no one can be saved by doing justice, loving kindness, or walking humbly with their God, but if we have been saved, we will do those things. We've been justified before God. And being justified makes us realize the importance of demonstrating our relationship with a just and righteous God by doing justice and righteousness. Not so we can be justified, but because we have been justified. We've been made right with God. And it's his desire that we bring others into that justified relationship with him as well. And doing so will hopefully make it possible for his will to be done on earth 
as it is in heaven. For justice to roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Let's do our part to make it happen. Let's pray. Father, there is a lot of confusion today about the nature of justice. But help us not to lose sight of the fact that we've been called to do justice and righteousness in this world. Give us wisdom from your word to understand what that means and how to do it. Help us to celebrate our justification before you by making it possible for others to know you as well. And together, it's my prayer that your will will be accomplished on earth as it is in heaven. That's our prayer in Jesus' name.